This is Secure, hosted by Charles Latimer and presented by FinFit, a podcast empowering business leaders to build a financially stable and resilient workforce. Hi, everybody. Just sat down with Tim O'Neill from True North for an interview. We discussed building a business case for financial wellness into the C-suite and helping HR executives establish a data-driven story for success. Check it out. We're really looking at getting in the minds of a buyer and an employer and thinking about what are some of the considerations as they look through the sea of point solutions and really try to narrow down what's best for their organization. So thank you for taking your time to share your insight. Um, if you could just introduce uh, yourself, that would be great. Um, your name, your organization, and your title and your position um, to get started. That'd be awesome. Sure. Uh, one, th- th- thank you for the invitation to do this interview. Uh, my name is Charles Latimer. I uh, work for uh, FinFit. We are the uh, one of the oldest and largest financial wellness companies serving uh, employees in the U.S. Uh, we currently serve a population of around 8 million employees and representing 300,000 primarily small to medium-sized businesses across the U.S. I'm our chief health and wellness officer. So as a part, my role primarily is to define the impact and outcomes we generate for our clients, engineer solutions uh, for our large enterprise clients and strategic partners. And so I do have an opportunity to talk with a lot of stakeholders and a lot of chief human resource officers and and buying committees as they sort of wade through, as you say, you know, kind of a sea of point solutions and trying to help those teams orchestrate something that makes sense with financial stability being a primary foundation that we start with. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Um, maybe talk a little bit about the organizations that, that you speak with on a regular basis and, you know, why or why not is employee health and well-being a priority? What are you hearing out there these days? So, uh, it, you know, d- despite all of the sort of nervousness about a potential recession and and all of the um, all the kind of sort of rattling in the markets, what we've seen over the last 18 months is a, an increase in inflation, uh, also a, a very, very tight labor market. I mean, we're at, uh, you know, over a 50-year low in terms of unemployment. So that makes it very competitive out in terms of trying to attract talent. That's one piece of it. But also, uh, the, there's the pressure of inflation, and, and that that has an inherent then pressure on wages. And so that that is sort of a a perfect storm that we are seeing and hearing out of the market. And that's created a lot of financial instability and, and a very complex problem set for human resource executives to work through because they're, you know, traditionally, uh, you know, companies aren't, aren't going to go and give a 10 to 15% raise across the board or a twenty percent raise across the board to be competitive in the mar- in the talent market, and, and so you know we we work with our prospective clients and and our partners to come up with creative solutions to solve those very complex problems. 
So whether this be a priority for an organization or not, in terms of employee health and well-being, I think what, what you're saying, Charles, is due to inflation and tight labor market, a lot of organizations are facing this, and it, because of that, it's become a priority. Would you say that's true? It, it, it's forcing it as a priority because, I mean, having a stable, healthy workforce becomes a competitive advantage in the market. So if and that that also becomes a a part of the recruiting narrative but but also uh, if you have a healthy workforce that you that feels supported uh both financially and emotionally and mentally and physically uh you know all of the data all of the literature points to uh significantly a greater retention over yeah. time and 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 this th- those are what, what what we try to do here at FinFit is to tell a data-driven story. Mm-hmm. One, so, sort of on a macro level, what's the what's the research and literature out there regarding uh, the sort of positive impacts of having a healthy workforce? But how does that translate into a very specific uh, company, their culture, and how do you begin measuring those impacts over time? Is one of our top priorities because if, if if a buying team or a chief human resource officer can't tell a data driven story up to the C suite, yeah, nothing's going to happen. Yep, you're exactly right. And in terms of the impact that employee health and well being has on an organization or the business goals, it seems like what you're saying, Charles, is this has a direct correlation between an organization and their business goals. Has that changed over time? And do you feel like the landscape is driving that? Maybe tell me more about some of that. I I think it's changed significantly over time, primarily because our ability to measure uh, and and the data that we collect now in this space is just dramatically different than it was 20, 25 years ago, if I could date myself, when when I really began working with companies Mm -hmm. on solving primarily retention issues. Yep. Uh, and it, we, we didn't have the sophistication, the the research backing, um, the just the overall um, assessment capabilities that we have today. And 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 what has emerged, which I think is a terrific thing, is that I, I believe the gold standard for any wellness program uh, should sort of set itself up to say, listen, with, with the highest level of integrity. We need to be able to communicate a data-driven uh, outcomes-based narrative around a few things. One is retention. That's the sort of lowest hanging fruit for most companies because they have immediate access to payroll data. And they can use payroll data and they can really isolate um, you know, program participation against their payroll data and triangulate a, a pretty quick impact study. Yeah, and then once you extend from there, I, I think the overall industry is really trending towards um, taking this sort of payroll data, programmatic level data, connecting it with claim data mm-hmm. on the healthcare side to be able to uh, not only tell a compelling story regarding health outcomes, but um, really be able to demonstrate the specific impact that if if you have somebody in a wellness program. And, and you can impact their their health outcomes. There, there are a lot of positive cascading effects to that. One is 
a greater stabilization and security and housing and transportation and food. Uh, so there, there are these huge halo effects that happen once you once you can actually increase somebody's uh, one financial stability, but also some positive health outcomes. So, yeah, it, I, I think that that you know our, our ability to tell those stories and collect that data yeah. really has become. I think has emerged over the last two to three years as being the biggest game changer. Yeah, yeah, and so these programs go from historically something that are a feel good to something that are really part of a business strategy as they compete for talent and face inflation and other variables. It sounds like. Yeah, I, I forgot who, who told me this recently, but it's we're evolving from uh, being a vitamin to, to to being you know a, a very strategic medicine. Yeah. You know, and and over time. We'll, 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 you know, this will evolve into, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you're familiar with CRISPR, you know, but, you know, where we're, we're really getting into the DNA, not, I, and I don't mean this literally, I would just mean this illustratively, you know, getting into the DNA of each individual um, worker, each individual employee. And, and what happens when you do that, I have found in, in my career, you stop looking at your your workforce population as a risk to be managed. Yep. And and that philosophy then shifts to sort of an asset. Yeah. Be nurtured. Yep. And, and nurture into flourishing over time. Yeah. And th th those are really two. You, you can almost sit down with a chief human resource officer and a CEO and a CFO, yeah. and know within three to five minutes which camp they're in. Yeah. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, and maybe talk a little bit about um, as you think about, you know, who is involved in determining the employee health and well-being strategy, as well as the initiatives. Um, and how do you gain alignment if you do have differing perspectives? Well, I mean, that's the I mean, that, that's the sort of million dollar question. Right. So okay. um, what, what ends up happening and th this is really the chasm that needs to be closed, I think, over the next five to 10 years using data and analytics, predictive modeling and all that. But what ends up happening is that um, typically the human resource um, team comes together and says, you know, we we want to build a wellness program because, you know, their philosophies and 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 their individual alignment to wellness programs is, is sort of obvious. And, and then so, so they recommend a whole series of, of programs Mm -hmm. uh, most of which have costs associated with it. So now you're now you're expanding the decision making team. Yeah, that's going to include uh, your CFO. That's going to include your CEO, and that's also going to probably include you know depending on the size of the organization, an executive committee. Right. And so you probably have your corporate counsel sitting in there. So so now what you've done is you you've had this wellness program. You you have the quarterly pressure of earnings, and and you got all of these other moving pieces. And and to prioritize wellness and without a data driven story on how that's going to reduce healthcare costs over time, yeah. you're going to be you know you're going to have a tough time. Yep. You're gonna, it, and I, I think chief human resource officers face one of the toughest audiences internal and external. Yeah, <laughs> because you know they're they're constantly one sort of making an argument for resources and you know and and fighting for programs that they know will have an impact, but doing so almost on a qualitative level and not a quantitative level. So yeah. it, it can be a, it can be a tough, tough process that's multi-year to, to yeah. get, a, you know, in large organizations 
to, to get a single program approved and, and implemented. Yeah. Are there certain business drivers, Charles, that support the employee health and well-being strategy for an organization? You mentioned some of the external factors, but are there any other business drivers that you can think about that we haven't covered already? And if not, that's okay too. You know, I I, I actually think the the recent um, sort of understanding of ESG and its its impact on not only company culture. But it's actually impacting the investment markets. I I think that's that has the potential that as a business driver really shift um, this mindset of the overall C suite because I, you know, there's a lot of really interesting uh, research coming out of Wharton right now that connects um, a company's commitment to ESG, which I would include health and wellness. As, as an internal business driver to that. Yeah. And and I, I think every successful company in that regard sets key metrics, key, you know, ESG metrics against their internal health and wellness programs. And, and I, I think there's an absolute demonstration uh, now. I, I think it's indisputable that the more connected and focused on ESG, uh, the greater return, investment return you're going to get over time with yeah. a particular organization. So I, I think that that you know, in terms of key business drivers, I would I would say that's one key. But but candidly, the lowest hanging fruit everyone looks at is you know how do we reduce the expense line? Right. And, and and the the one expense line everyone is very easy to point to is on the healthcare side because it's yep. historically just gone up and up and up and up. Yeah. Yep, totally agree. Um, talk a little bit, Charles. You mentioned a lot about data. Talk about you know what data and information sources and tools do you use or that you see companies use to really inform the requirements of what an employee health and well-being program should consist of, and maybe talk about how those tools are effective. So, what do you see? You mentioned payroll, but but maybe there's some others. Yeah, we we have a whole series. So we, we start with programmatic assessment level data, and, and that that starts with getting a baseline assessment on the health and wellness of an individual. So it, in, in our particular field, that's their financial stability. Uh, and we, we, in particular, do a sentiment analysis in, in, in the sort of financial wellness space because it's the sort of best predictor of stress. Yeah. And so, and stress then becomes the through line to health outcomes. So, once we have that and understand that within a population, we do a pretty good job of being able to break down a workforce population into three sort of primary or subpopulations: being vulnerable, coping, and healthy. Mm -hmm. um, candidly, the entire financial services industry has been built around serving the healthy part of the population, and, and that continues to today. So we we really try to focus on the vulnerable and coping communities because they're underserved. And it's the greatest opportunity for a company to actually get a lift in things like retention and, re and reduction in healthcare costs. Mm -hmm. This is the first data set. Yeah. And then, as you mentioned, the second data set we look at is payroll data over time. Uh, we, we are, uh, the vast majority of all of our offerings are payroll connected. So we, we, we are very fortunate here to, to have a very clear line of sight into things like hire date, term date, 
geography, you, you know, down to literally zip plus four. And, and so once you can really sort of build that foundation of understanding, you can layer some really interesting things on. It's yep. good. Now, now we understand, okay, we understand your stress levels. We, we understand, we understand your compensation. We understand, um, you know, your, your turnover rates, the, the full nine yards, but now we can begin layering in um, population health data sets, which is really that then you're beginning to build, you know, risk maps that are quite compelling, especially for larger organizations. So uh, now, now there are probably literally 150 uh, readily available uh, health population health data sets, mm-hmm. and, and everything from I include in that things like housing security, transportation, um, uh, also food security. Mm-hmm. And and that that also starts with at the top level of that is the CDC. Um, I, I don't know, it's probably not the same CDC. <laughs> the, the, the Center for Disease Control has a series of um, population health data sets that they that they put out. And, and so now, once you have all of those major pieces, you're really beginning to build a very compelling story. And then that final layer of connection is then back to claim level data. Things, yep. things like uh, safety incidents in the workplace, but all the way into, um, you know, how how often or at what level of frequency is your workforce actually going to their wellness checkups, those sorts yep. of things. Yep. Now, in our field, that's that's becomes a challenge. That last mile is a big challenge, mm-hmm. you know, and those who can connect that last mile of data are going to win the day. Yeah. Because connecting the claim level data, then you have clear line of sight, especially with the impact of financial stability and financial stress on the social determinants of health that we discussed earlier. You know, the housing and transportation, food and securities, which if, if you can dial in those, you, you'll, you will have a tremendous impact on, in an individual's life. Uh, but you have to make that last final lap in terms of connecting back through to claim level data. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're spot on, Charles. And, you know, the next question is, you know, what are the challenges that impact the employee health and well-being strategy and goals? And what I heard was connecting the claim level data is a challenge, or at least it can be. Um, and then also, you know, kind of that push-pull between you know, the, you know, how do you reduce the expense line and, and some of those other areas? But um, are you seeing other challenges that impact uh, employee health and well-being strategies and goals beyond what we covered? If not, that's okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think just connecting the dots uh, all, all the way through our conversation, I, I think one of the biggest challenges is is winning, not, not the hearts of the C-suite, but the minds of the C-suite. And, yeah. and, you know, so once you have all this data, what story are you going to tell? Right. You know, and and how are you telling that story? And, and and you know, the analytics and and building predictive models with all of those data sets I just described, mm-hmm. and then getting to a point where you can be prescriptive, where you can literally identify parts of the population that need intervention. Yep. To do all of that is a, I mean, is a multi, multi, multi million dollar lift. Yeah. Most companies. It's hard enough to get the program uh, approved, much less the multi-million dollar data project to yeah. prove efficacy. Right. So, 
So what, what I think in, in some of the work that, you know, I'm most excited by with, with new strategic partners is, is that we're, we're not only running that final lap, that last yeah. mile, yeah. which is, it's almost the same. It, it, it's probably one of those sort of magic things that happens in the universe. Yeah. This mile is so hard. Yeah. Uh, but we we're finally there. I mean, I, I think we'll, we'll be able to see in the next year or two, mm-hmm. um, you know, our ability to predict, mm-hmm. um, you know, parts of workforce populations that that are one getting ready to turn over, two getting ready to have a significant health event, three uh, at, at high risk for things like safety incidents, uh, and, and really be be able to predict a level where we'll be able to dramatically uh, decrease things like workers' comp and, and and those sorts of things. So we're close. We're close. We're getting there. So employee health and well-being is really a critical integrated part of the business strategy. It's a C-suite level conversation, and it really takes data and is very strategic in nature, I think is what I, what I heard from you. A- absolutely. I mean, but, you know, from, from my standpoint, it, it maybe I'm, I'm I, maybe I'm underselling my own sort of sense of humanity too. I mean, it. I mean, candidly, it's also just the right thing to do. Absolutely. Uh, and, yeah. and, yep. But but you know, running around and saying it's this is the right thing to do, all really only gets you so far. I mean, yep. you know, yep. it's it yep. certainly in in winning the minds of of leadership and the minds of and when you get to large organizations mm-hmm. and you're serving the Fortune 1000, winning the minds of the market. That, yeah. Those are two different things. So as you think about your audience, Charles, do you start at the high level with the C-suite and talk about this concept and then work with some of the key stakeholders on analytics uh, HR information systems to actually then start to draft and put together the specific opportunity and solutions. Talk about who's involved in developing the strategy and then delivering solutions within the organizations that you work with. Before we ever uh, get a yes with a large organization, probably on average, um, we will talk to 12 internal stakeholders. You okay. know, that's about an average. Wow, and and it, it can go as high as I have uh, sat with working groups, multiple working groups, with over twenty five stakeholders in, in an organization. Not only to run the final lap in terms of getting a program approved, but then getting it you know stood up. You know, so yeah. so that that could be. Um, so some of the areas that could might be surprising to the to your audience would be um the communications department mm-hmm. the, you know the you know those folks who are who are running internal communications yeah. of course human resources uh the technology teams i mean th- this is you know if you're doing wellness programs that are are that are data driven mm-hmm. you know you're going to need significant buy in with this with the chief technology officer or, or the chief data officer, and let me tell you, those folks are busy. Yeah, and and those folks have typically in their queue of work to be done. You know, probably half of their list is coming from the CEO and CFO. Yeah, and the other half of the list is coming from the CEO and the CFO. Yes, they're trying to wedge in. Yeah, it's just. And, and and so you first have to convince the CTO that they, they should prioritize yeah. these efforts. 
And that's a lift because it's, you know, now you're integrating with, you know, the HR information systems, all of that. And then, you know, in addition to that, now you actually have to get buy-in from line level, uh, the line level employees, but also their managers and immediate supervisors yep. to communicate and support and give the time uh, and give these sort of oxygen in the workspace to prioritize health and wellness. Because candidly, you, you know, it, a, a lot of supervisors and managers, that, that's not one of their KPIs. Yeah, yep. And, and so if it's not one of their KPIs, and they, and they they do not get bonus, they're not rewarded for it. You think yeah. they can prioritize it? They're not. Yeah. Yep. You know, so it literally, um, the the greater the stakeholders that we can talk to and, and sort of build not only a business case, but also the human case as well. Yeah. Um, the, the better off will be and the more successful the program is over time. Yeah. And and, and I, I can't stress enough how important uh having the a dedicated communications team is yeah. to the success of any wellness program. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Charles, as companies look to determine what solutions to invest in. Ideally, they would follow that type of data-driven process. But what are you seeing and feeling out there in terms of how these type of decisions are being made today? Does it go through that process the majority of time? Is it based on somebody that knows somebody? Is it all the above? Talk about how these decisions are getting made. Just curious. It it, it really um, depends on probably the greatest predictor to answer that question is what's what size of the organization are you in? Okay. You know, so um, literally if it is less than 50, I mean, you, you, it is a, it's a probably the founder of the company um, maybe with an HR manager, maybe. And, and, and they are looking for holistic solutions, plug and play something I can just, I can I can you know pay another you know whatever fifty hundred thousand dollars a month per employee whatever that number is. Yep. Uh, it's already wrapped in probably with their payroll solution, and they just want to hit they just want to hit a button, pay for it, and and, and leave it alone. Yeah. And and uh, but then you know from those fifty to hundred employees, once you get up to over a thousand, and you you know this as as well as anybody, the uh, the maturity of the HR function begins to emerge. And so then at that point, actually, at that point, the HR function has a lot more autonomy mm-hmm. and probably can lay a lot more weight between, you know, the sort of a thousand to five thousand employees um, where where that function is just starting to kind of burgeon that they're really not necessarily answering at that point to executive committees and see, you know, probably, yeah. you know. Quarterly earnings isn't like such as much of a big deal yeah. at that point. And so getting getting programs prioritized internally is much easier. But, they, you know, things like, you know, really sophisticated evaluation uh, processes are probably not in place. Right. You know, probably not, uh, you know, any oversight in that. And so then a lot of it's, you know, relationship driven. Yep. You know, do, do I know somebody who does this? And, and if I do, I'm just going to plug them in. Uh, yeah. Or, you know, I'm going to go to a conference and whoever I, whoever had the prettiest booth is probably who's, who's going to get selected. Yeah. Um, but then once you kind of break through over 5,000, then it's a different animal. You, yeah. you know, and uh, five, 10,000, then you're, and, and th- this is, 
you you should be doing that that part of the interview because you you understand that um, better than I do, candidly, uh, from an internal perspective. I, I know what it feels like to help manage that and marshal that externally. Yeah. Uh, but it but that th- then you go through a very sophisticated evaluation process where, where they're looking at at least a dozen uh, different point solutions. Mm-hmm. At that point, they're trying to orchestrate their own holistic solution. Yeah. So, so, so they're curating a whole series of point solutions across the spectrum. Man. You know, and so you've emerged out of this place where somebody just wants plug and play, do the whole thing for me. Yeah. And, and then into a space like where all of a sudden we are so unique in the world that we yeah. need to control each individual dial. Oh, and yeah. that's just another animal. Yeah. And, and, and they're all... Yeah, they're all fun. Yeah, you know I mean, they're yeah. all you know have their own sort of um, sort of unique qualities to them. But the what once you get into that, you know, the final category of the large enterprise, then you're yeah. you're looking at multi year projects yep. just to get something approved. Typically, yep. Yep. unless there's a very strong externality, you know, like legislation that is accelerating decision making. Yeah. No, you're exactly right. And I think you made a good point on external variables like legislation, which can be um, a game changer. Now, Charles, are like Sarbanes Oxley, I mean, yeah, boy, I mean, look at that, that overnight, you know, you would think, you know, getting a group of CFOs and accountants (laughs) to make immediate decisions and execute uh, would be nearly impossible. But boy, you put in legislation with a bunch of penalties and fines associated with it. Yeah. People get motivated. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and speaking of that, you know, do you see companies using a specific set of criteria in selecting <laughs> these type of solutions? I'm sure you see a little bit of everything, but what criteria are you seeing companies using? So I I have the joy of fielding all, all of our RFPs, you know, mm-hmm. and, and so one of the things that... <clears throat> I found in in wellness programs is it's evolving actually quite rapidly, and it's also dependent on you know as I said earlier to the 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 maturation of an organization. I mean, yeah. you know, are, are they are they one one of the big big bohemists that you know really when they're evaluating something it, they're going to want to understand at a very sophisticated level an ROI yep. associated with it, and those ROIs are are easy to do, you know, at a, at a mentor who said he never saw a spreadsheet that he didn't love. Right. You know, but they're very easy to to present. They're very difficult to get buy-in or believability. Right. Those ROIs. So, so that, that on one side of the spectrum, you know, in terms of selection, you're, you're looking at a, a group that's going to be very focused on ROI. They're, they're going to want to understand the sort of interpret interpretability of a of a point solution and its ability to connect in yeah. to a whole array of things that are, are operating. So it's going to be very, when you're looking at large enterprises, their, their line of sight in terms of selection is going to be quite complex because they, they may be selecting you as a point solution, but you have to be orchestrated against multiple pieces that are moving. Yeah. And so that becomes actually pretty um, each individual RFP there becomes then quite unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then when, once you kind of go, let's say sub 5,000 employees, then you're getting the sort of, you, you may as well, you know, ha- you can predict the top 25 questions, you know, yeah. do you, 
you, you know, and, and for, for different sort of health and wellness programs, that'll be different, but for financial stability, you know, you're going to be looking at things like, you know, do you offer coaching? Do you, you, you know, what, what is your service levels in terms of, uh, you know, availability for coaching the, you know, what kind of technology do you have? Do you have built in banking solutions? Are you payroll connected? All of those things. But uh, yeah, like I said, it, it changes given the size of the organization in my experience. You know, we've talked a little bit about the vast sea of point solutions and that alone can make, you know, the selection process challenging. But what are some of the highlights in terms of what makes the selection <laughs> process easy for a company or easier and what makes it challenging? What would you say on both of those? What makes the selection process easy? Or hard. Uh, yeah. So, you know, the, the easiest will be if you have built-in re- relationships um, that and a proven track record. I mean, if, if yep. you have built-in relationships, a proven track record, yep. you can point to an alignment, mm-hmm. uh, you know, cultural alignment as, as a vendor and w- with a particular company. And sometimes that, that could be, you know, depending on the size of the company, that, that could be geographic. I mean, that yep. could be... Um, you know, that, that could be that we work together. Those are the things that make the, the quote on selection process easy. Yeah. And, and I, I say that sort of regrettably because I mean, I, I think everybody can be better than that. It's sort of yeah. the, the, the lazy person yeah. uh, version of selection, but it, that's real world. Yeah. What, what makes it difficult is obviously when, when you get into um, literally, you know, the, 15 to 20 internal stakeholders that will then the yes or no is that decision is made without the vendor in the room. Yeah. Made in the boardroom. You cannot make your case. And yeah. so everybody has to be in a hundred percent alignment. Yeah. And that that's a whole nother thing that, I mean, that just takes time. I mean, you just can't. And, and I, I think what is, there are a lot of health and wellness companies out there with a lot of pressure to grow. And yeah. when you're working with large enterprises, you know, the thing I continuously say, there are no shortcuts. Yeah. They're just yeah. absolutely no shortcuts. Yeah. You've got to check every single box or, or you're not getting through. And um, which candidly, I like, I yeah. mean, I, I love that yeah. because it means we've done our homework. Yeah. And our clients have done their homework. We're aligned and, and we're ready to roll. I yeah. mean, we're ready. You know, once we get the yes, we're ready to go. Yeah. And we in in those processes, we're almost always successful. It, okay. it is the it's the easy processes that we we typically get tripped up on. That makes a ton of sense. If you could use three words to describe an employer or a buyer's experience in selecting employee and health and well-being solutions, what three words would you use to describe that buying or selection process? Um, overwhelming. Um, undifferentiated. And... Um, and, and and important too. I mean, there's a sense of importance, you know, in, in the buyer. But I, I think the first two. I mean, so, so that's all balanced. I mean, so so there's a sense of 
importance and reverence yeah. behind, you know, but most everybody I talked to, I mean, you know, they're responsible for having an impact on 5,000 people, you know, a thousand people's lives or 50,000 people's lives, a hundred thousand. I mean, and, and at some point you're talking the size of a city. Yeah. And, and so there's, and so there's a lot of sense of reverence, yeah. you know, in the process, but you know, if you're, especially if you're orchestrating point solutions, yeah, you're, you're going to, you know, you quickly get, you quickly get 30 options and, and then that becomes overwhelming and confusing yeah. and yeah. it can get frustrating. But, but at the end of the day, I think everybody works through those things because the upside is so huge Yeah, when you do it right. You know, you know, all of a sudden, I mean, we can see, uh, in our data, the individuals who participate and get financially well over time, you know, that that population is like they turn over the, the difference in turnover from that to the general population is like 25 percent less. I mean, that's that's phenomenal. I mean, like yeah. it, it, it's great for the company, but I'm just talking about an individual. I mean, basically, you get somebody to a place where they're feeling safe enough to be stable. I mean, yeah. People typically leave because they're stressed out, freaking yeah. out. Yeah, and and when you could do that and really look at the day, be like, "Wow, what we're doing works." Yeah, and, and it has a real impact on real people's lives. And then I, I think the people that I like to work with have that sense of reverence and that that ability to say what we're doing is important. It's hard because these are things that are typically not prioritized because. Candidly, as an industry, we just don't do a very good job selling that internally. Yeah. Uh, but um, I hope that's helpful. Man, that's awesome. Um, you know, we talked a lot about what's working and not wor- and what's not working. Um, you know, as we wrap the interview today, um, any words of wisdom for companies that are selecting these solutions? Anything else you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it, it's, it's be the theme, you know, I, I'm not very complicated in this regard, which is, I, I think there are a few notes I play and I play them all the time. So, yes. And the number one note I play is um, collect data day one, you know, even, even if it's not organized. Yep. Be data driven day one. Just make sure you collect your data. Yep. And, and then over time, even if you're not doing anything on the analysis side, if you have the data, that's always an option. And then be willing to invest the time and resources into telling a compelling story to the organization that's data-driven, not only using external research, but taking that external research research and being able to illuminate and shine a light on your specific culture, your specific workforce population, and tell a story that one is boardroom worthy, gets the boardroom excited, but also at the end of the day, you can go home and know that you've done something to impact a group of people's lives. And yeah. I, I, I think if I, if I talk to anybody, I mean, it sounds that the drum of data and telling a data-driven story it's it's not just you know to prove an ROI, but I think it's just to prove uh, to to show to ourselves that you know our efforts on a day in and day out basis make a difference. And yeah. if if you believe that what you're doing is making a difference, yeah, you know that at the end of the day, I think that's 
that that's what reduces HR stress, right? Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. Well, thank you very much for that interview. I'm going to stop the recording, Charles, and wonderful, wonderful insight. So very appreciative of your time and going through that. Thank you, Tim. Anytime for you.